Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to John chapter 17. If you do not have a Bible, you are most welcome to use the Black Pew Bibles in front of you. If you're not familiar with how to read the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, the verse numbers are the small numbers. And this morning we're going to be in John 17, and we're going to be starting in verse 24. We're going to finish out our last sermon on the high priestly prayer of Christ. Follow along with me as I read from God's word. John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. I have three points for you this morning. Point number one, the knowledge of God. Let's begin this morning's sermon with a simple truth, simply stated. God wants us to know him. In the book of Acts, in chapter 17, we read these words. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. And yet, He is actually not far from each one of us. Friends, God could have concealed Himself from us when he made all of this creation. He could have been like a criminal cleaning up the crime scene before leaving the premises. No DNA, no fingerprints, no evidence left behind. But that's not what God did. He built this world and he built our lives in this world in order to make himself known to us, the inhabitants of this world. We should also note that It is not as if God has left the knowledge of himself in this world obscured or hidden. That is, the knowledge of his existence is not in any way hidden. You don't have to be a Sherlock Holmes or a Father Brown to solve the puzzle of God's existence. Just listen from Romans 1 as Paul describes the way that God has built himself into this world. He says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So God did not build this world and put him the evidence of himself in it like a sort of where's Waldo you know, search for God in the universe, see if you can find him storybook adventure. No, he, he made it plain. God is not hiding from us. He is not a, a well-camouflaged recon sniper. He's a big, bold sign with bright, flashing lights standing in front of a black background, dancing and flailing his arms, and he's calling out to us, I'm here, and I want you to know me. And yet, in this morning's text, Jesus says that the world does not know God. Look at verse 25 again. Jesus says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you. How can this be? The fingerprints of God cover every square inch of this universe. But apparently, fingerprints are not enough. Why? Well, going back to Romans 1, we're told that the reason why, even though God has made himself obviously known to us, yet we don't know him, the reason why is that our foolish, darkened, rebellious hearts have made it so that we ignore this obvious knowledge of God. Romans 1.25 says that we have all exchanged the truth of God for a lie. More specifically, in Romans one twenty eight, Paul says that because of our sin, we do not acknowledge God. That is a great translation. That is the perfect English word to put here. Why? The word acknowledge means to accept or to admit knowledge of something. Right? So, so right at the heart of this morning's text is the idea that, that man has had God fully revealed to him and yet has chosen not to acknowledge the knowledge that has been revealed. What Jesus is telling us is not, not only do we not know God, sin has made it so that we, apart from God's grace, cannot know God. Sin and rebellion have made sure of that. Sin and rebellion cause us to fail to acknowledge that which we know. But, because God wants us to know Him, and to be known by Him, He did not leave us in our rebellion. He did not leave us in this blinded state of arrogance. Rather, He sent His Son Jesus to lead us back into a knowledge of Himself. And this knowledge of himself that he wants us to have, it is not some bare intellectual knowledge like trying to remember the dates and events of some portion of history for your exam. No, this knowledge is a deeply personal, intimate knowledge. The knowledge that you can only acquire through having a relationship. And this, friends, is the heart of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is the God-revealer. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ongoing ministry at the right hand of the Father, His work in your heart even this morning through the power of His Holy Spirit, all of that, all aimed at this one thing, to have a deeply intimate 
personal, relational knowledge of the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who is by His grace calling us home even though we have been rebels in His kingdom. And friends, no one else can carry out this God-revealing ministry like Jesus can. Jesus can carry out this ministry because He knows the Father like no one else knows the Father. He knows the Father perfectly. Look at verse 25 again and just look at the way Jesus sets this up. He says, Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You. I know You. No one knows You like I know. Not the kings, not the priests, not the prophets, not Moses, not John the Baptist. No one knows you like I know you. Who can reveal the Father better than the Son who has known the Father perfectly by sharing in His love and glory for all of eternity? We could spend all day, every day for the rest of eternity being directly in the presence of the Father and we would still not know the Father like the Son knows the Father because the Son has known the Father since before time even began. When we think about the way that nature reveals God, nature reveals God the way a clock reveals the reality of a clockmaker, right? You don't look at a clock and go, oh, that just happened by random process over the course of billions of years of evolution. No, you look at a clock and you go, huh, somebody must have made that, right? But you don't look at a clock and say, oh, the Clockmaker is tall, he's from Sweden, he has blonde hair, he's nice, sometimes he's a little snippy with his kids, and he really likes to do puzzles. A clock can't tell you that. What we need in order to know God is not just general revelation from nature, we need someone who knows God intimately to tell us what God is like, and that's who Jesus is. Jesus comes along and he says, let me tell you about the Father. My dad is big and he's strong and he's tall and he makes a lot of money and he's good at baseball. He doesn't say those things about him. I never had a dad. I'm trying to figure out what that might sound like. Jesus comes along and he says, this is exactly what the Father is like. This is how much He loves you. This is what He has done to bring you home again, even though you ran off and chose the world, chose sin, chose Satan rather than Him. This knowledge that Jesus reveals to us about the Father has a very specific purpose. It has a very specific aim. We are inundated with knowledge. We are bursting at the seams with information. What, what children are expected to learn in school these days, from kindergarten and preschool all the way up through college, is, is unfathomable. And sometimes when we're acquiring this knowledge, we're, we're trying to take in so much, some of it just feels like it's pointless, right? You've, you've heard kids say this, or maybe even some adults speaking about children's education, saying, like, why are we studying this? Why are we learning this? I'm never going to use this in real life. That's what I would always say about algebra, even though algebra is really useful. I just hated it. So I would say, I'm never going to use this. And I'm a pastor and I was right. I don't ever use algebra. (laughs) 
But that's how knowledge acquisition can feel sometimes, right? Like, I'm just filling up my head with this pointless information that's never actually going to serve me beyond school. And sometimes that's true. But friends, this is not at all what the knowledge of God is like. The knowledge of God is practical to the extreme. There is no knowledge that is more practical, that is more useful for your life. For your eternal life, than the knowledge of your Creator. And the aim of this knowledge is that you would be with God. Why is Jesus revealing the Father? So that one day you would be with the Father and enjoy Him forever. Which leads us to point two the glory of God. The glory of God. The aim, the purpose of our knowledge of God is that it would lead us into the presence of God and His glory. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundations of the world. First of all, just look at the way that Jesus prays to the Father here. He just shares his desires with boldness. He says, Dad, this is what I want. I want them to be with me. It's hard for us to pray like that, right? Just to go to God and say, here's exactly what I want, God. And it's hard for us because our desires are all mixed up and confused by sin. We've prayed for a bunch of things that we've wanted before, and then we've looked back on those things and thanked God immensely that he did not give them to us because they were bad. Our desires were disordered. And then we prayed that God would keep us from certain things, and then we look back and we praise Him that He didn't because going through those things made us more like Jesus. So sometimes when we go to God in prayer, we do so tentatively. Our heart's desires can lead us all down all kinds of tricky paths that might not be so good for us, but Jesus, His heart is pure. His desires are uncorrupted. His will and the Father's will are one. So He just... Tells God exactly what he wants. And this is what he wants. He wants all of his disciples, not just the twelve present here, but all true disciples, everyone who has come to believe in his word and be saved by it. He wants all of his followers to be with him forever in glory. Friends, consider the immense love of Jesus seen in this request. Jesus loves us so much. I, I, you know, I had, you ever just right-click on a word and then you try to do the thesaurus and look for better words and sometimes that can really backfire on you in a paper. But I was looking for something better, something more nuanced, something more powerful than he loves us so much. But you know what? I really couldn't find anything. He loves us so much. And his love for us is not theoretical. He doesn't merely love the idea of us. Do you understand that? He wants us to be with him. He doesn't just like us at a distance. That's infatuation. A man sees a beautiful woman and he says, I have to have her. 
She has to be mine. And he pursues her and he gives her gifts and he does everything he can to to get her to be with him. And then he finally gets with her and within a week or within a month or within a year, the shine wears off. And he realizes that what he really loved was the idea of this woman. He realizes that he doesn't actually love the woman herself. He realizes... That his love was love at a distance, but that it disintegrates upon sustained contact. Friends, that is not the kind of love that Jesus loves us with. He loves us with a love that says, I want them to be with me, and not for an hour. Sometimes when I meet up with people, I plan to meet up with them at a restaurant in case it doesn't go well. I have an easy out. Hey, I got my kids. Got to get them home. Hours all I can do. That's not Jesus. He doesn't want you just with him for a day or for a weekend. You ever gone on like a trip with some close friends? You're like, man, I loved you. I love you so much. But two days, that's enough. That's not Jesus. He wants us with him forever. Moreover, Jesus loved us when we were unlovely. He didn't choose us at our best. He chose us when we were low and wretched, foul and broken, sinful and rebellious, not clean, but filthy in our sin, not lovely, but in abject poverty, in complete need. And he didn't have like some veil between him and us where he perceived that maybe, maybe from a distance he thought he saw something that was better than it really was when he got close to us. No, he saw us perfectly. Exactly as we were. And he loved us. And he gave himself for us. And he has cleaned us with his word. And he's made us beautiful in his sight. And he will take us home to be with him forever. Just try and think about who you love most in this world. If I sort of order my loves, I have God, Amber, my children, and the church. And then everybody else is way beneath that. So I'm trying to think, like, let's, let's just, okay, God, let, let's just take my wife. I love being around my wife. My wife is my best friend. Like, we spend all of our time together. We always have spent all of our time together. It, it's never a burden to me. I don't want to spend every second of every day with my wife. She does, sometimes she'll be like, hey, I'm going to Target, bye. She doesn't want to spend every second of every day with me, no matter how much we love each other. You take the kids, right? I love my kids more than life itself. Sometimes I look at my kids and I just feel like I'm going to disintegrate into a puddle on the floor because of how much I love them. And I do not want to spend every second of every day with them. Go play in your room. Go outside. Daddy just needs a minute, right? All the parents are like, amen. All the single people are like judging us because they don't understand. <laughs> members of this church, I, lo- I-, I spend every free minute I have with members of this church. I love the members. I just don't want to spend every second of every day as things stand right now with your sin and with my sin. Every second of every day with you for the rest of eternity as things stand now. But when we're glorified... For sure, we're going to be like hanging out forever. But Jesus wants us with him. 
every second of every day for the rest of eternity. And it's not like he just wants us kind of around him. You know, like, like we'll be on one side of the house on the phone and he'll be on the other side of the house doing his thing. No, he wants us near to him. He wants us in the same room as him. He wants us like a small child to sit on his lap. He wants to embrace us in his love forever. He wants us to be in his presence with a kind of depth and intimacy that we cannot even begin to imagine. All throughout John's gospel, we've been seeing this language. Jesus says, I'm going to be in you and you're going to be in me. The kind of intimate relationship Jesus wants us to have with him forever is not us being around him, but him being in us and us being in him. You see that at the end of verse 26. Look there. Jesus says, I I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. But there's more. Jesus says, I want them to be with me so that, so that they can see my glory. So that they can see my glory. Now the ESV, the ESV study Bible, it it tells us that this word translated as see here in English, it doesn't really capture the fullness of the original Greek word here, which means something more like to observe with sustained attention. It says that this idea of seeing, it's, it's like the idea of entering into and experiencing something. So Jesus doesn't want us to merely see his glory like you might see a picture of Mount Everest in a picture book. He doesn't want us to see his glory like you might see the moon as you look through the telescope. Jesus wants us to see his glory as we are entering into it, as we are being folded into it, as we are being consumed by it. You know, earlier in the service, our sister Susan Fink read from Exodus 33, where Moses, he says, Lord, please just let me see your glory, right? I, I love that passage so much. I just feel that way all the time, you know? Lord, please, just, I'm dying out here, you know? Sin is a beast. This world is overwhelming. Trials and tribulations I just feel like I can't do it, God. I can keep going if you'll just like, just give me like a little bit of your glory. Just allow me to see just a little bit of it, and I promise that'll give me all the juice I need to keep going. And that's not true, right? Because he's already done that. And here I am needing more. But, but that's what Moses says. He says, show me your glory. And do you remember God's response? God, God tells Moses, he says, listen, I can't. I love you too much. If I show you my glory, it'll kill you. So so what does God do? In his mercy, God finds a way to show him a sliver 
of his glory, a, a gnat hair of his glory, a micron of his glory. He says, all right, Moses, you're gonna, I'm going to put you behind this rock here, and I'm going to use my hand to cover your face. And we know that God doesn't actually have a hand, right? But the idea is that God's going to protect Moses so that he can reveal the most that he can reveal without killing the man. This is as much as we can observe of God's glory as we live in these bodies of flesh. But Jesus came to change that. Jesus makes it possible for us on the last day when we are taken home to not merely observe the periphery of God's glory, but to bathe in the glory of God. He allows us to open up our eyes and stare directly into the white hot center of the flaming fire of God's holy glory and to do so with sustained attention for the rest of eternity. And this glory that Jesus is going to wrap us up in, this glory that God the Father is going to shower us in, it's not some second class hand-me-down glory. It's not last year's glory. It's the same glory that God the Father has been lavishing on God the Son for all of eternity. Which leads us to the next question, which is this. What is this glory? Well, that leads us to point three. The love of God. Point three. The love of God. In short, the glory that we are being called into is nothing less than the love of God itself. Pastor and theologian Bobby Jameson talks about God's glory in two ways. He says, first, there's God's intrinsic glory. You know what that means because it has the word in it. Or in, in it, right? Intrinsic. This is the glory that is contained within, God, contained within God. This glory is the very love of God itself. Let me explain. Let's say that you could go back to before the foundations of the world. Before the first inkling of creation. When God spoke the galaxies and the quasars into existence. Let's say that you could go back to the time before time, the time when there was no one else and nothing else other than the first person, the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's no one else and nothing there. Now, if you could be there, wherever there is, what you would see or hear, or, or taste, or fear, feel, or smell. All of this is kind of ridiculous because language fails us. Who knows what senses would operate like there. But if you could go back to this time before time and experience nothing but God himself, what you would experience would be nothing less than the divine, self-contained love of the Trinity. You would see God the Son doing what he's been doing since time immemorial, loving God the Father. Or I don't know, did I, maybe I got that wrong, but you get the point. God the Father, God the Son, 
heaping love on one another. Now, if you could be there to experience that love, to perceive that love of the Godhead in some way, what you would experience in that moment would be the glory of God. Now, here's the thing, and this is utterly astounding. Jesus says here in John 17 that all of his true disciples will one day know that glory. All of his true disciples will one day know that glory. And we will not know that glory intellectually only, but experientially. We will be caught up in that eternal ocean of divine love. We will see it, we will taste it, we will hear it, we will feel it, we will be utterly immersed in it, because that's what verse 26 says. Jesus makes the Father known so that, so that the eternal love of God will be in us because Jesus himself will be in us. Just look at verse 26 again. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So that's the first kind of glory. That's the intrinsic glory, the self-contained glory within the very nature of God himself. Now, we pause here and we ask, if God has this this glory of his love within himself, it's self-contained, he doesn't need anything to feed it, it just is a part of his very nature. If he has that within himself and has always had that within himself, why would he feel the need to share it with us? Why would he feel the need to invite us into that? He doesn't need us in order to have that. So why does he share it with us? He's good to go. Well, that brings us to the second kind of glory. Extrinsic glory. Intrinsic, it's within. Extrinsic, it's glory from without. You can think about it like this. The first kind of glory is the kind of glory that's like the, the light that radiates out from the sun. The light comes out from the sun and, and, and it radiates, it pulsates out into the universe. But this second kind of glory, this extrinsic glory, is the recognition of that radiance. It is the recognition of that radiance. The second kind of glory is not the light itself, but rather it is our response to the light. It's what happens when we see the light and love the light because the light is holy and beautiful and perfect in every way. The second kind of glory is what happens when we experience the glory and glory in it. Why is God making himself known to us? He didn't have to do it. He had the love contained within himself for all of eternity. Why is he sending the radiance of his love glory out to us? So that we might increase his glory by enjoying it forever. Now, 
You may be thinking, Sean, you've been talking a lot about the Trinity, the self-contained love and glory of the Trinity, but I'm not hearing you say much about the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit fit into this whole equation? Well, there's a lot that could be said about that. But for now, let me just share one thing with you, one mind-blowing thing, really, if you just stop and meditate on it. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we come to partake in the love glory of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the means by which we come to partake of the love glory of the Father. We could say that the Holy Spirit is like the conduit of God's love glory, but that's a little dangerous because it risks talking about the Holy Spirit as if He's a thing and not a person. So we might say that it is the ministry of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to pour the glorious love of God into our hearts. Lest you think I'm just sort of pulling that out of nowhere, like a, mad, a rabbit out of the hat, just a theological magic trick. Let me just show you the way that Scripture kind of connects the concept of, of God's love in us and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to read some Scriptures to you. So you're welcome to jot these down and, and look at them more later. Romans 5.5. 5. The Apostle Paul writes, and, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or you can also see this in 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the eternal glorious love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The love of God is made manifest in us because we have fellowship with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who manifests God's love in our heart. In closing, please consider, friends, that Jesus had one mission on earth. He had one aim, according to this final prayer. His one mission, his one aim, was to bring us into the glory of God's love. This is why Jesus was born. I know it's Christmas, and we haven't necessarily recognized it very much in our service this morning. There's a lot of celebration of the birth of Jesus this morning that is misguided. A lot of celebration of Jesus this morning, that's exactly spot on. And I'm happy that there are Christians and churches that are celebrating the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in such a way that brings Jesus all the glory. But you have to remember that there was a reason for the incarnation. There was a reason why God came in the flesh. There was a reason why he was born in a manger. The ultimate reason why Jesus sacrificed his glory and on the cross was separated from the love of God, was so that we would be brought into the glorious love of God by His atoning work. This is why He was born. This is why He lived a perfectly righteous life. This is why He laid down His life on the cross and absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. Why would He do that? He didn't have to do that. He had the eternal love glory of the Trinity He didn't have to come here and take the wrath of God on his head and shoulders. He didn't have to bear that in his soul. Why did he do it? 
so that we might enjoy that love glory forever. This is why he was put into the grave. This is why he got up out of the grave. This is why he has sent his Holy Spirit to live in the hearts of his true disciples and to minister to us, to bring us into the glory of God's love. And So let's sing about that together now. Let me pray and then we will rejoice together in song. Amen. Father God, we pray that you would help us to rejoice. Help us to sing with hearts that have been edified by the, the wonders of your word, the, the incredible promises we find from Jesus. Lord, help us to remember that because your son prayed for us that we would enter into this love glory, it is a foregone conclusion that we will. It is done it is accomplished. Your son said it is finished, and it is finished. He was raised from the grave as the guarantee. Your Holy Spirit has sealed us as a promise for that final day. So as we struggle through life in this fallen world, as we wrestle with our sin and with others, as we deal with the corruption and decay of this, this world that is fading away into oblivion, sustain us by your grace with a vision for what is coming. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.